to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Do you ever feel like life is all work and no play? Do you feel guilty doing fun things sometimes? Do you struggle to have fun at work? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's episode is for you. We're talking about all the reasons why it's okay to incorporate more fun in your life and the steps that you can take to do that. Here to help us figure that out is Dr. Mike Rucker. He has a PhD in organizational psychology and a long background in working in the tech and health industry. He's also the author of a new book called The Fun Habit. It's based on his years of research as well as his own personal experiences. And in it, he describes how our usual pursuits to happiness aren't effective. Some of the things he talks about today are how to create time for fun, how to prevent burnout, and how to discover the best fun habits for you. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. It's the part of the show where I'll give you my take on Mike's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Dr. Mike Rucker on why you should give yourself permission to have more fun. Dr. Mike Rucker, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I feel like I'm at home because I used to be part of the Very Well family. Well, yeah, funnily enough, when I invited you to be on the show, it was because I wanted to talk about your book. I had no idea that you have a connection to Very Well. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, it started when it was about.com. And uh, so I've always been interested in health and wellness. And when I moved to San Francisco, I got involved with Gary Wolf and the quantified self movement. And so that kind of led to an affinity for digital health. And at the time, I don't know how Rachel found me, to be quite honest. Um, and uh, at Rachel now is a figurehead, right? And, and very well. Yes. So yeah. she's the the general manager of very well. Yeah. Just for folks that don't know, because I just name dropped. Right? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so she found me because I had been writing um, some case studies and things of that nature. And so I became the health tech writer for very well. Um, you know, even this was during my academic work as an organizational psychologist, but it was really fun to sort of be a beat reporter on that space. And I talk about it some in the book as well. I think, um, you know, certainly some of what I, you know, succumbed to and became problematic was the over quantification of health. And I think I unpack where um, that can be helpful and where it can go awry as well. Yeah, to get the backstory for our readers who don't know, we used to be about.com and then we became very well later on. And about.com was this huge conglomerate where we had information about pretty much anything in the world all on one website. And then when Google things updated, it made more sense to break up into different verticals. So we broke up into different verticals. Like we have the spruce and we own very well and even very well is now very well health, very well fit, very well family and very well mind. I'm now part of very well mind, but you wrote for very well health, right? That's correct. Yeah. And I think at the time it was just very well health. So I I transitioned from about to very well health and then I, when I graduated, I wanted to focus on psychology. And I think at that time, Google was getting even more intense, right? So it's like, okay, we have these um, content uh, 
you know, expertise. And now we got to break it down even further. I imagine that happened on the financial side too, right? Did that uh, property kind of splinter off to even more specificity? Yes. I mean, that's what we found is that Google now much prefers that we are very specific on on every site that we have. So um, yeah, for those of us that were still around in the about.com days, we now work under all the same umbrella, but for different verticals. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. So thanks for the <laughs> being able to look in the rear view mirror. And I'm really happy to be here because again, I you know, enjoy, I've enjoyed my time with very well. So I'm glad to be back as a guest. And then, so you went on to write this book, among many things that you've gone on to do, but you wrote this book called The Fun Habit, which I, as soon as I saw the title and I saw the cover, I thought, well, that, that's an interesting topic because it's not something that we really discuss that much is the, the idea of fun. And I think there's a belief that like you shouldn't have fun or you don't need to have fun or fun is just something that is an afterthought, not something we should really incorporate into our lives. But I'd love to hear from you since you're the expert on the subject. What are some of the misconceptions you hear about fun? Yeah, I think there's a whole host of different headwinds, unfortunately, right? Some of us, you know, depending on how we grew up, still have this underpinning of the Puritan work ethic, right? Like somehow if we're really enjoying ourselves or taking time off the table, somehow that um, could erode our self-worth because productivity overall, you know, essentially. Um, some is that we want to have fun, but because of the modern work era, um, we really have these insidious devices that can capture our attention, right? So, you know, whether you're using it to displace, you know, boredom just because you're so burnt out, you know, it's just an easy way to kind of pacify time. Or for some like myself that are driven, but don't necessarily understand the difference between busy and productive. And so, you know, we'll get these notifications from our Slack channel and email channel at 8 p.m. And, and we still feel like we have to engage in them. And that kind of sucks out the ability to engage in leisure and fun. Um, to, you know, the fact that right now, for the first time in history, we are all living longer and that's allowing us to have kids longer so that, you know, the so-called sandwich generation where, uh, you know, folks between the age of 35 and 50 really have had, have domestic duties that ha have never been seen before, right? You know, generally in prior eras, you had parents that could help out with the kids. So that provided some relief where you could actually go out and enjoy yourself. Um, and then actually, you know, there's been a lot of research to suggest that grandparents got a lot of fulfillment of being able to be parents again. Now you're seeing as, uh, again, you know, we're having kids older, you know, a lot of times our parents are in their seventies and eighties. Like, you know, I'll just use my N of one. Um, you know, my parents are in their eighties. There's no way they can take care of my kids that are, are young. Right. And I also feel an obligation to take care of them. So we have these extra domestic duties that, you know, um, where we still feel the sense of duty because these are people we love. Right. So we don't want to do something necessarily for ourselves. Um, because it might take away from, you know, that feeling. And so what has happened is you're seeing all sorts of crazy statistics, right? Like burnout was already an issue before the pandemic. Pand the pandemic made it more complex. But, uh, you know, the APA, sorry, the American Psychological Association just came out with some statistics that floated around LinkedIn the last couple of weeks that one in four people are so burnt out, they don't even have energy to do anything by the time they get home. Um, you have the leisure statistics that suggest we're the second to last within regards to the developed world with the uh, with companies providing leisure to employees at 10 days off per one year work. There's only one country behind us, Micronesia at nine. 
And what's even more scary, right, is even though we're getting the least amount of vacation, only 50% of folks are using it. So there are all of these headwinds. And I, the way I like to explain it that I think kind of people are like, oh, wow, I do remember that. And I remember how asinine that was, is how we used to champion sleep deprivation in the 90s, right? You would never do that now because after decades of research, we know how asinine that the suggestion is to be like, dude, just grind it out. You know, uh, Gary Vee has definitely come around. And so, I, you know, um, but I say kind of came to that. I remember he's like, stop watching Lost and start working when you put the kids to work. If you really, you know, believe in, and he, you know, now he has a chief happiness officer at VaynerMedia, right? Even the most staunch folks that were championing the hustle, quote unquote, have walked that back because they know if you burn yourself out, you can't be productive. I think we're seeing the same with leisure and certainly like the EU is way ahead of us, right? Now you have different countries in the EU actually, you know, playing legitimately with a four hour work, excuse me, a four day work week, four hour work week is a a hat tip to to Tim (laughs) Ferriss's really difficult ideal. But so you, you know, we were kind of talking about a pre-pandemic as this fanciful thing. Like now it's being put into practice and you're seeing folks actually be more productive. Um, you're seeing, you know, uh, also folks do things that are a little bit more accessible, but like equally as important, um, companies shutting down email servers, you know, at 5 PM so that you're actually protecting that space. And just for folks that are interested in the science to get there real quickly, and then we can kind of unpack it. One of the biggest eye-opening things I found while I was doing this research um, was that this concept called the hedonic flexibility principle. And what it suggests is that when we get in that mode, right, when we're not valuing fun, and there's some of, uh, you know, evolutionary reasons why that might be the case, you know, there are theories, but there's certainly a lot of good reasons why we might um, have a bias towards kind of negative thinking and, and not really want to prioritize, you know, pleasurable thoughts and pleasurable activities. But the people that do are the ones that show up as the best versions of themselves and ironically are the most productive, right? So again, going back to this, and this study was out of Harvard, MIT, and Stanford, and it's an amazing study, right? You know, generally a lot of these studies have small sample sizes. This sample size is 28,000 people. So a really rich data set, right? And what it showed is that, you know, predictably when people are burnt out, they engage in what we call passive leisure, right? Essentially things where you just don't want to spend any more energy. So you'll plop down on a couch, channel surf, you'll, you know, scroll social media or doom scroll like I did during the pandemic, right? And all of these things, even though they kind of feel good in the moment, they're not invigorating at all. They continue to deplete you just like work, right? They're not adding anything. Like one of the litmus tests that I found is helpful is like, can you look back two weeks from now and tell me what you were doing during that hour, right? Like, did your brain think it was important enough to actually encode any of the information? Um, Because that's what we want, right? This tapestry of memories, we know that builds resilience. So those folks tend to be on this downward spiral. You get less productive, you wonder where joy is in life, you wonder why you're doing it, you know, you're not feeling fulfilled. And so even if you are coming from this sense of duty, where you're trying to serve others, and you know, that's a um, benevolent place to be, right? you're, you're, it's maladaptive because ultimately that you don't have anything to give. And so, um, you know, and I, in the book, as you probably know, I show that from all the way from domestic duties to folks that are really making huge impacts globally. Like if they're not taking some time to enjoy themselves, they just can't show up eventually. 
And the problem is it's insidious, right? It happens over time. So you're like, ah, I'm fine. You know, and then it doesn't kind of, you know, come down crashing on you until four or six months later. And it's really hard to unpack what happened. The people that are able to create transition rituals, save space for leisure, really do like, I'm going to work hard, but then I'm going to do things that I enjoy, right? Even if that's maybe work, but in the context of complete autonomy, like, you know, for me, it's, I'm going to read a good book because I want to keep my saw sharp, but it's not necessarily something I'm doing for someone else or under the guise that I have to do it. It's more, I get to do it. Those are the folks that just crush it the next day. They have the vigor and vitality to do the hard things. And then it becomes this upward spiral, right? They feel good about what they did. And then they're able to have that extra energy to engage in what we call active leisure. You know, things like hobbies, things like enjoying social, pro-social behavior with their friends because they are not just like, ah, you know, like so many of us find us, right? Like, I don't even know if I want to go out with my best friend because I'm so tired. Like, what a weird place to be when you actually, you know, pull back the curtain, right? But that's where we've gotten. And unfortunately, I didn't really, I don't think I was as aware until I went on the book tour of how US-centric this problem is. It's certainly a global phenomenon because, you know, I'm fortunate the book's been translated in a bunch of languages. And so I'm getting feedback that like everyone could, you know, use a little bit of a fun boost. You know, we tend to be fun starved. But here, especially in the US, is like, I just even know it got that bad. You know, like, holy cow, I haven't taken a vacation for two years. Like, what's that about, you know? Yeah, I hear from a lot of people who will just say just that, that I'm too exhausted. By the time the weekend rolls around or I have a day to myself, like I don't have the energy to do anything. I just want to lay down on the couch and not move for 24 hours as opposed to going out and doing something that I might have thought was fun years ago. I just don't have the energy to do that anymore. And so then they feel like they don't have any fun. And the other big issue I hear from people is like, I don't know what's fun. Maybe my friends like to go to the beach, so I go along with them. But like, baking in the hot sun on the sand, I actually don't find enjoyable. But but then they'll say, but but like, I don't really know what I like to do. I just kind of go along with the crowd. Or if an invitation comes along, I might say yes. How do you recommend people figure out like, what do I consider to be fun? Yeah. So I think it's just a matter of mindfulness, right? It's essentially a mindful exercise of trying to figure out what that is. And for a lot of folks, it will be, you know what, I really enjoyed this activity when I was younger, um, you know, some like, you know, I don't know, you know, for me, like I, I bring it up in the book, I love Ironmans, but I can't do them any, you know, I got injured. And so that's just not practical. Right. Um, so there are going to be some things from your youth that, you know, you, you write them down and you're like, okay, this can't happen, but they're going to be a lot, um, that you will want to do. Right. The commonalities that I find with pe- people that I work with, um, a reconnection to music is a big one. Like, you know, I really love playing the guitar and I just put it down. Life got too busy, right? The the big one is dancing, which kind of blew me away. Um, you know, just a lot of people really like that activity for fun, but because they have nothing left, you know, after the workday um, or this, you know, again, speaking of sort of these weird social norm, norms that like hold us back, like, yeah, I'd love to go dancing, but the dance class is only on Wednesdays and I can't go out on a school night. Like, really? Right. And again, if you look back at the science, the people that do prioritize that, um, like actually feel better that Thursday. And then it, it becomes cumulative, right? Then they actually want to do more and more things. So that's just, sorry for the quick pause, but that's like another, right? Like it, just these weird, you know, heuristics that hold us back. And 
So to get back to answering your question, so you know, look look in the rearview mirror, kind of see what might be missing that you used to have in your life, see what's still practical. Then you know, see what's out in front of you, right? Like, don't succumb to FOMO because a lot of times that's external influences. You know, like, oh, I really like what you know Sally's doing. I wish I could do that. Really, do you? You know, because like I, I fall back on the work of Jeannie Sai, uh, Dr. Jeannie Sai out of Stanford. Another problem in the West is we so champion high arousal activities is like when someone says, I don't, you know, I just don't know how to have fun. It's because they're seeing Instagram influencers click their heels on the beach, right? And they're like, well, yeah. that that's not what I like to do. Well, you know, my wife is someone who really likes low arousal activities. So for her, ensuring that there's time to read a great book, which for her is super fun, you know, buy a pool that's not, doesn't have a lot of people because she's introverted. Like that's okay to be your fun, but then it's, you know, it's the same, you, you see this about self-care too, right? Like there's that kind of guilt, but when you're, when you allow yourself to kind of find what those things are, you know, give yourself permission and not have to prescribe to what somebody else is saying fun should be so that you have a reaction like that. Like, I don't know what fun is really. You don't, are you sure there's nothing out there? And then, you know, what are things that you want to do in your future? So I think a helpful exercise is, you know, again, as morbid as this is, so I'm trying to do a rebrand, but you know, it is a very helpful exercise that I, I, I took from psychology is when you are facing death, what is it that you want to look back on and feel good about? And generally those are things that are fun. You know, I, I, I'm throwing out arbitrary numbers, but I would say it's a significant proportion. I was going to say like nine out of 10 people, right? But it, but it's, it is definitely a majority of people when they look back and wonder what that is, it's not going to be work-related. It's generally going to be something fun. Like I wanted to spend more time, you know, with the people that I care about, or I really wanted to master this craft because when I'm doing it, it lights me up. I feel a connection to that. So that that's the third thing, you know, what is it, you know, once work is over that you, you're going to feel good about this. You're, when you reminisce about your fond memories, you're going to be like, I wanted to do that. And when you work backwards, you start to realize time is finite. And sometimes, you know, that last step can actually be a good motivator too. Like, holy cow, I only have, you know, 25 years left, you know, and you start to make kind of better decisions. I found it to be a pretty helpful exercise. I think so too. When you fast forward and then try to look back, nobody's like, oh, I'm so glad I spent all those years cleaning my house or working overtime for a, a job that maybe didn't appreciate it that much. And just to unpack that really quick, like there's good science why you should do that as well, right? Uh, and right. I'll, I'll get to it really quick because, you know, it's intense neuroscience, but it's important. You know, as adults, we have so much, especially now more than ever, so much incoming information. We should give ourselves grace. Like we need heuristics and algorithms to be able to get through the day, right? Like it, there's so much complexity. If we didn't boil it down to sort of simple steps, we would go mad, right? In fact, is probably leading to burnout today because you, we do have so much to think about more than ever, right? And then just, again, a component of happiness is comparing, right? We have more people to compare than we ever have. Our parents had the people on the block, right? Now we're like, are we as good as people on Instagram? Are we as good as people on the block? Are, you know, like have so many things. And so taking a step back um, and understanding that, right? Like, oh, okay, so my life has gotten kind of linear. When you... When, when our behavior gets too habituated in that way, our brains are really efficient and they will start to store 
those common instances as a single memory. And that becomes quite problematic as you age. You know, you lose um, uh, cognitive plasticity because you're not really engaging, you know, your memory because you need to encode different experiences to have this rich breadth of, you know, what uh, Dr. Uh, Cassie Holmes calls, you know, a tapestry of memories. And if you don't have that, um, your brain stores them as a single event. And you look back as, at, you know, at a life that's essentially passed you by and a good metaphor that's helpful for people to go, wait, I don't quite understand that is if you had 300 copies of the same magazine, would you keep all 300? Cause they're all the same thing. Or would you throw out 299 and keep that one? Um, and so that's essentially how your brain works as well, because, you know, we are efficient machines, right? And so creating these, experiences, what I call variety becomes extremely important, not just for our own well-being, because, you know, we look back at a life well-lived, but also for things like cognitive decline. And that's not just conjecture, you know, there's empirical evidence to suggest that that's helpful. And I think a good example of that is during COVID, right? When everybody said it felt like Groundhog Day because everybody was doing the exact same thing over and over and over. And we would lose track of whether it was Tuesday or Saturday (laughs) because all of our experiences were very similar day in and day out. And so for a lot of us, when you look back over COVID, it's just this one big lump of time where not a lot of things stand out, right? And isn't it weird? Like for me, it's like when Zoom goes awry, you know, it will like when it's trying to catch up because you have bad bandwidth, <laughs> you know, like now time, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, um, get my footing with regards to that. Yeah, because it seemed, I encoded it as one memory. So it seemed like, you know, even though it was a long stretch and I write about in the book, I got long COVID. So it wasn't exactly fun for me either. Um, but now it's weird because it's like, I am trying to play catch up. And so time is, is, is dilating in interesting ways. And I don't think I'm the only one from, you know, sharing that with others. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And you also talk a lot about in the book, how we don't necessarily need to separate life from like fun and non-fun, but instead we can just start incorporating fun into everyday things that we do. And sometimes we separate, attempt to separate that, but then fun isn't necessarily a hindrance. And I'll give you an example from my own life. My listeners know I try to run a timed mile every day and see if I can beat my time. And for a long time, I didn't like listen to uh, music while I did it because I was supposed to be like, oh, I'm really trying to strive to reach this goal. And then one day I listened, right. Then one day (laughs) I listened to music and suddenly it was like my fastest time ever. And I didn't even realize it because I was having fun while I was trying to achieve a goal. And it was one of those reminders of, oh yeah, it doesn't have to be either or, but you can do both at the same time. Yeah. It's funny. I remember that because I was the same exact way. Like all the Puritans in my running club were like, uh, you know, that's not, and you know, I was, I just, again, that is a perfect example, right? Where you're like, you know, okay, naysayers, that's fine. That works for you, you know? And so figuring out what's intrinsic and what, you know, extrinsic's important, you know, that helps us. We are products of what we bounce off other people. And I think our close friends, we care about what they think. We care about their opinions. If we didn't, we'd be sociopaths, right? But at the end of the day, if someone's telling you, well, you know, that's not what running is, like, go jump. (laughs) I did the same thing. Like, um, so for my first Ironman, I don't write about it in the book, but, uh, you know, I do about the Ironman, but not what, no, maybe I did. Sorry. Uh, but I found out you couldn't wear headphones rightfully, uh, because they want you to be able to hear traffic. Right. And so, um, we don't need to go into, you know, potential safety concerns of wearing headphones, but for a race like that, where, you know, they need to ensure it totally makes sense. So for my bike, I rigged it up 
with uh, a boombox, you know, type thing. I kind of tried to make it somewhat aerodynamic, but like every serious Ironman athlete was like, that is an atrocity. Like, you know, you're supposed to do everything you can to cut off a few seconds. I'm like, that's not why I'm here. I'm here just to hear that I'm an Ironman. And so, you know, I make several cases in the book where, okay, episodically, right, there might be things that we need to do that are hard and that aren't going to be fun. For sure, actually, I think most of us um, that want to be, uh, you know, contribute to the greater good in some way are going to need to do hard work. But that is depleting. And I think what we're finding, especially here in the US, to link back to the, you know, original ideas at the beginning, is that we're all kind of approaching this in this sort of lens of martyrdom that is so depleting, we don't have anything left to give. And when you can make the hard stuff fun, then it starts to be invigorating. And you actually find that not only do you, you know, only need to episodically recharge your batteries, sometimes they're actually charging while the engine is on, you know? Um, and so, you know, and then, you know, what I just laugh about is, and then you're having fun. So you're doing all the things you wanted to do and now life's enjoyable in the most, you know, amazing ways. And I loved in your book too, you talk about workplace fun. We often think of those two things as competing forces, right? You either go to work or you have fun, but there's ways to incorporate fun into the workplace. And I'll say at this point in my life, like, I feel like it couldn't get to be any better than it is. Like my podcast producer is my best friend. We work from a boat in the Florida Keys and we get to interview cool people on our show. Like, does it get much better than that? That's pretty amazing. So it makes work fun every day. But I've had experiences where the workplace was definitely the furthest thing from fun. And I know how much that affected the quality of my life. I worked in a call center one summer during college and it was dreadful. We had more phones ringing than there were people and everybody's yelling at each other all day long. And I remember I'd go out in my car during my lunch break just to get like silence. And I would dread having to go back into the office at the end of my lunch break. And I couldn't wait to get home at the end of the day. And what a different experience that made all of my entire life. I mean, I lived for not being at work as opposed to just being able to to enjoy my job where there's a, a blurred line now between, you know, people say like work-life balance, but there, there isn't that balance, right? That we don't necessarily only have fun outside of the office, but you can have fun at work. But can you talk some about how we do make work more fun? Yeah, like before I start that, I will say, man, you just nailed it, right? Because the, the three main variables that you can kind of play with to make things more enjoyable are the people that you're with, the activities that you're doing in the environment. And it sounds like you right. just <laughs> hit a grand Does it slam. Get any better? No, so that's amazing. Um, yeah, and so I think, you know, to unpack the work chapter, it was really interesting because I have, you know, colleagues, you know, organizational psychology colleagues that have looked at this. But when I dwelled into it, what I realized is that the complexity of where people want to start, you know, what I call forced fun in the chapter, it's like, you know, I don't necessarily like this group or what I'm doing. That is an extremely complex problem to unpack. And so where I started and I think it's been quite helpful is really what do you have control over within your space? You know, what are the things that are going wrong where at the end of the day, you're just not enjoying your time at all? And how can you play with, you know, ideas to see if you can make it more enjoyable? So the first is, where are your transition rituals, right? Like, where is it where you can say, okay, work is over. And so this isn't necessarily making work more fun, but it's making it so that you're saving space to have fun 
outside of work so that you can come to work, you know, with a little bit of a better uh, attitude. And then once you figure what it, that is when at the end of the workday, uh, you know, I prescribe to reclaim your lunch hour um, because having that break within those two four-hour subsets has clearly shown that you come back and you're able to be a lot more productive. So many people show up in the afternoon and really don't have anything left because so, you know, there's so many ways for us to make our work lunch essentially an extension. And so finding ways to have fun within the middle of the workday become important, right? And so, you know, I talk about uh, a friend of mine, Tanya Katan, who, um, you know, essentially just started uh, to walk, you know, because that was enjoyable for her. She would go use her curiosity to find like a cool coffee shop or whatever. And then when people saw how invigorated she was when she came back, they actually started inviting themselves along. And so, you know, fun for her was creating this affinity around walking and, and that's what they did during lunch. Um, another thing is figuring out, especially for folks that are working in innovative areas, and I, I steal this from John Cleese, is how can you turn complex business problems into playful endeavors, right? Like essentially, not necessarily gamifying them in the traditional sense, but creating a safe space where you can use this heady problem and sort of unpack it in a playful way, knowing that whatever the outcome is in a discrete amount of time, you can break the eggs, like, you know, really just unpack that. And then um, I have a tool set that's, you know, kind of a more macro tool set in the entire book, but how can you use elements of what I call savor um, to change elements of your work? And so we could get into that real quick, but essentially it's taking a step back and really becoming an anthropologist, right? Like seeing you know, all of the components of your workplace and then potentially manipulating what we just said, right? That you've already crushed. So I guess you didn't really need to read the book, right? Like, <laughs> you know, where is it where you can align yourself with people that you really enjoy, right? And that might be outside your department. That's another thing, right? We always try to sort of focus on what, what's right in front of our nose, but there could be really fun people, you know, that would still make sense to cohort with, you know, around shared affinities that are outside your department. and then you don't have that ego depleting notion of like, well, I have to put on a good face because these are my cohorts, right? I mean, there are, you know, American social norms that we're not going to skirt, right? We can't change. And, you know, and also we need to be good stewards of psychological safety. So, you know, maybe your ill-defined humor, you know, that will allow you to have fun isn't appropriate in your immediate cohort because, you know, again, you want to, you need to care about other people's psychological safety. Um, so, and then, you know, you can play with the environmental variables, right? Like for you, it's being on a boat, but, you know, something that's more accessible might be just taking, you know, habitual meeting that everyone hates to be at into nature. Something that simple can change the tenor, right? And so, you know, that's a loose definition of fun, but it's certainly a more pleasurable experience than, you know, being in the four walls of a yellow room, right? And then, right. you know, changing the activity itself. You know, there's so many work activities that... When you look at them, there might be more creative, fun ways to tackle them. Um, and so whether that's, you know, adding game mechanics, whether that's changing up the way you do it, um, you know, giving yourself timelines, um, approaching them in a playful way, there's just so many opportunities to reinvigorate fun into the things that you do instead of the way that so many of us have sort of habituated our time at work, you know, where it just essentially becomes drudgery because we just come into you know, punch the clock, do our thing and then leave. Right. And there's a lot of research about 
having a friend at work or having friendships at work and how good it can be for us. And I spent most of my career working as a therapist and therapists are somewhat private people most of the time. And we're in our office with clients and we don't really interact that much with each other. So I had very different experiences at different offices that I worked at over the years. And then one of my last jobs as a therapist, my sister was a therapist in the next door office. And it was just a ridiculous experience to work with my sister, who is a fellow therapist in the same building. And I thought, how, you know, we have all these ridiculous jokes and things in the hallways when you pass each other and that sort of a thing. And I thought, it just definitely made the job way more fun, even though I was doing the same kind of work, just having somebody in the hallway that can, you know, give you the side eye once in a while makes a huge difference. Yeah. And again, I think so many of us are like afraid to cross pollinate, right? So in your example, like if you, you know, aren't really finding, you know, sort of attachment to your immediate colleagues, oftentimes, especially in bigger corporations, there are opportunities to, um, you know, figure out what folks are doing outside of work. Again, you know, it, it happened after the book was released, but that amazing example in France, right, where the work culture was that fun was drinking, after, you know, after work, and it was clearly not fun for him. And they forced him into it, and ultimately he won, rightfully, right? Because, and so, you know, if your sort of immediate cohort isn't engaging in things that you enjoy, oftentimes you're going to find you know, your tribe, um, if you just look a little bit. And so that could be, you know, a book club that's happening at lunch that you invite yourself to, you know, or, you know, as simple as that. Um, And then meetup.com is is another amazing place, you know, to kind of look for that type of affinity. And then, you know, generally, as long as you have a good relationship with your leadership, if it's something for personal development, generally, you can take time for work to do that. So there are all sorts of creative ways to to figure out how do you recapture a little bit of your agency and autonomy, which is a central tenet of the book, right? Like in all aspects of life, you know, a little bit of control so that you're, you're doing the things that you want, you know, things that fill you up, but still moving the ship in the right direction. Absolutely. So last question for you, somebody who says, all right, I want to start incorporating a little more fun in my life. Where do I start or what do I do? What do you recommend? Yeah. So, you know, we already discussed it a little bit, but I think um, you know, and it's common advice, you really do need to become mindful of how you're spending your time. So many of us as busy adults have habituated our behavior. And so just a simple, you know, audit of the previous week, it's only 168 hours looking at how you're spending that time and looking for opportunities um, to potentially remove things. Because an important piece that we haven't touched on yet is this isn't homework. This isn't to add fun to your already busy to-do list. So this all starts with creating space for things that are already depleting. Um, and so figuring out what those are. And if, you know, generally, and again, you know, I reference some time studies in the book, we kid ourselves that we don't have any time, right? Even, you know, the most busy people are heterosexual, or excuse me, wives and heterosexual relationships with kids. And even those, um, as a generality, can find like an hour or two, um, uh, every day, if it, you know, again, according to these uh, surveys. So I will present that data and people will be like, uh, uh, that's, you know, like, that's not me. Okay, fine. Well, let's look at least for two or three hours that you can change. And generally, people are willing to at least accept that invitation. And if you're still struggling, just open up the health meter on your phone, right? Like, and look at all the time you spend on apps. And generally, that'll be eye awakening, like, okay, I'm probably lying to myself a little bit figure out where those spaces are and then just integrate one thing that you want to do, but do it for at least two to three weeks because initially change for anyone, even people that like variety becomes hard, right? Especially 
again, some of the most beneficial things I see is when people connect to a new hobby, but that dissonance the first couple of weeks, like, ah, I used to be so good at the guitar, you know, and generally it, it doesn't take as long to get back up to speed as we think. But even if you're not, you know, where you want to be, just normalizing that new routine over two or three weeks and then checking in with yourself, you know, the third week, like, holy cow, he was right. I am like the next day, I just have that much energy. So that's a good step. If you don't want to do that, another one, I already name dropped her, but uh, look up Dr. Cassie Holmes study from UCLA on just having the mindset that your weekend's a vacation. So don't change anything. Just go, you know what? This is mine. Um, I'm, you know, don't even mix up your schedule. All she did was, you know, provide the prime. Like, hey, this is yours. You, you use it as you please. It's a vacation from work. And just that alone, there's, you know, for a majority of people will be enough. Like, okay, I'm going to start doing the things I want. I'll, I'll still clean the house, but yeah, I get it. It's my time. I'm not going to think about work. I'm going to be more mindful of the things I do. I'm going to escape, you know, what Matthew Killingsworth calls mind wandering, right? Which is, you know, another, you know, when we just kind of aimlessly go through our day, it's, it's a pretty direct path to, towards unhappiness. So if we can mitigate that, even just by being mindful that, we, this is our space and we have control. And even if we're doing things, you know, like taking care of others, we're getting to do it rather than having to do it can be enough to kind of change the tenor and hopefully get you back on track. I love it. Well, I hope all of our listeners go out and start incorporating more time in their lives to have fun and do fun things and to bring more fun into the work that they're already doing. Dr. Mike Rucker, thank you so much for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. Welcome to The Therapist Take. It's the part of the show where I'll give you my take on some of the best strategies for having fun and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Mike's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, get clear on the things that you can do for fun. I've never met anyone who said their favorite activity was spending hours scrolling through social media. Yet most of us probably have invested more hours than we'd like to count on social media apps at one time or another. And as Mike says, you might feel too tired to do too much. Consequently, you might spend your spare time doing things that require very little energy, but aren't necessarily fun. Watching TV and staring at your phone passes time, but it doesn't necessarily leave you feeling invigorated when you're done. So get clear on what kinds of things you actually want to do for fun. I like that Mike suggested looking back into your childhood or your past to think about what you used to love to do and perhaps figuring out how you can incorporate more of those things into your life now. Number two, prioritize fun. If you wait for just the right time to have fun, it's probably not going to happen. So it's important to make fun a priority. I've talked on the show before about scheduling things to look forward to. It's a strategy that we use to treat people with depression in the therapy office. Having a few fun things on your calendar each month can do wonders for your mood and for your well-being. So figure out what you can do to make fun a priority. It might be that you set aside 30 minutes a day for a hobby or maybe just one day a month to go for a really long hike. In Mike's book, he does a great job of explaining the different kinds of fun. Like one person's idea of fun might involve fundraising for a charity. Someone else's might be reading a book on a Saturday afternoon. But whatever your definition of fun is, schedule time to make it happen. And number three, pay attention to the people you're doing activities with. Sometimes it's less about what you're doing and more about who you're doing it with. In his book, Mike suggests things like 
taking a friend with you to happy hour if you're supposed to go to happy hour with your colleagues and it's socially acceptable to bring somebody along. If you don't particularly enjoy your coworker's company, bringing a friend might make it way more fun. There are lots of other things that you could do to make things more fun, like work out with a friend, run errands with your relative, or sit by a coworker that you like when you have to go to an all-day training. So those are three of Mike's strategies that I highly recommend. Figure out what you like to do for fun, schedule time for fun, and make everyday tasks better by doing them with fun people. To hear more of Dr. Mike Rucker's tips, pick up a copy of his new book, The Fun Habit. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.